As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. We don't see it the same way. I say we, people who come from the, the right who are opposed to the president, we don't see it exactly the same way, but we do understand the danger. And that's why we've, we've taken a stand that has cost us friendships, cost us professional opportunities, cost us all kinds of things, and sometimes personal security. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I quite enjoyed my conversation with Evan McMullen, the first guest on my show to have actually run against Donald Trump. Evan, who is a former CIA operations officer and political independent, who was an advisor to Republicans on national security in Congress, ran as an independent during the 2016 United States presidential election. At one point, polling showed him ahead of both Trump and Clinton in his home state of Utah. In the end, he received 21% there and a little less than 1% of the vote nationally. McMullen is now a critic of the Trump administration. We discussed his formation of the group Stand Up Republic, which aims to communicate with people in the center of the political spectrum about important constitutional values like liberty, equality, and truth, and to work to defeat threats to the republic like Trump and get them out of office. Evan and I met in Southeast DC. We had an excellent conversation, well worth listening to. I came away thinking he'd have been a far better president than Mr. Trump. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Evan McMullen of Stand Up Republic. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So, Evan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My full name is Evan McMullen. Actually, my first name is David, but I've always gone by Evan. That was a parental decision. But I was born in, in Utah and raised in the Seattle, Washington area. Now I'm the executive director of Stand Up Republic, which is a 501c4 nonprofit organization that does political advocacy. I founded that and co-lead that with Mindy Finn. Prior to that, I served for over 10 years in the Central Intelligence Agency as an operations officer. I then spent some time in investment banking at Goldman Sachs, uh, worked on Capitol Hill as a national security advisor, and then as the chief policy director for the House Republicans. Ultimately ran for president in a very short presidential campaign and challenged the president, the current president, President Trump, and in that, and, and tried to offer the American people from the right side of the political spectrum an alternative to our current direction. It's a really interesting biography and very unusual, I think. Not too many people have done a lot of the things that, mm -hmm. that you've done. What did you learn being an operations officer for the CIA that you apply to politics? I, I wish I had more time to, to think about that and give you a, a better answer. But I, I think one primary category of lessons that I learned that I think uh, apply to most things in life, but certainly to politics, is learning how to understand people and understand why people do the things that they do. You, you can't be a CIA operations officer without being interested in that and being interested in why people do the things they do because your job is is to understand that and then and then work with that 
to advance the interests of of our country and to protect its security and so that's one thing i did i mean you, you as a cia officer especially as an operations officer spending time overseas dealing with all kinds of different people in all kinds of different circumstances and the most stressful often dangerous circumstances you can imagine in those environments you you really learn a lot about what makes people tick and why people do the things they do in addition to about yourself actually so just understanding the the human condition i think is is probably the most important set of lessons that that i learned as an agency officer uh, i think some of the other lessons are about how unique our country is that we are a country that is based on a set of values that i consider to be truths and our founders consider to be truths and and from those values namely that we are all inherently free and of equal value and therefore equal under the law we have a whole system of government set up around those values and we are a very unique country because of that now there's then a question do we live up to those values and clearly we struggle and we've been far from perfect but the fact that we we have these values and that we've set up a government a system of government around them and we aspire to them with many detours is something that really sets us apart and by the way that's not something that only that i judge to be true on my own but it's it's the way others at least during my time of service perceived us for the most part not not always uh, because we made mistakes as a country during during that period too and and I saw the impact of it but but I did learn what value it is to our country to be set up the way we are principally around these values and what frankly power and influence it gives us when we remain committed to our own values and then when our power is weakened when we fail to do that I'll, I'll never forget a time when I was meeting with a foreign military officer who was helping work against an authoritarian regime that posed security risk to the United States and to the world, really. I remember meeting with him late one night. It was so late that there wasn't the, the, the streets were sort of quiet, and we were talking about a variety of issues. But one of the things that came up were our abuses at the Abu Ghraib prison in, in Iraq. And he started to question whether we were what we claimed to be, whether we were who we said we were. What he saw in the news about that, facts about that, questioned his confidence that he was doing the right thing by working with us. That was a huge lesson for me. It actually it didn't come as a surprise given what I'd seen elsewhere, but it was a lesson that was really crystallized into that particular moment. And, and that is just that, hey, look, we, we depend on foreign partners of various kinds in various contexts around the world to protect our interests and to, in general, do good. And if we don't remain committed to our values, that harms our ability to protect our own interests, our own security, and to otherwise have a positive impact in the world. What motivated you as a young man to go into the CIA? Seems like a risky endeavor that not everybody would be up for. What happened was that when I was, I think, uh, about 14 years old, my father brought home a movie called Three Days of the Condor. It's an old Robert Redford spy film, still one of the best ever made. I encourage everyone to watch it. I had wanted to be a filmmaker growing up, and, and as a kid even, my, my brother and I and my friends, we would make films on our, our little camcorder and edit them on the VCR and that kind of thing. But we didn't have a lot of money, and so my, my dad would, on the weekend, bring home a stack of movies from Blockbuster, and one of them was this film. And so it, it just captured my attention. After that, I read every book I could about the agency, and my interest in it and knowledge of it matured. Eventually, when I was 16, during the summer, I, I made contact with the agency, and they, they laughed a little bit at when they found out what my age was, and they asked me to call back when I was older. <laughs> and so two weeks later, I did call them back. And two weeks later? <laughs> yeah, I was a little bit older. I met the requirement, right? A young man in a hurry. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I wasn't prepared to take no for an answer, even at that age. And I connected to a, a recruitment officer at that young age, and we would then be in touch for 
some years after that, as I finished high school, served a, a mission abroad in Brazil for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then came back and, and went back to school. And then uh, I think I received my offer as a sophomore when I was in my sophomore year. Where were you? Uh, when I received my offer, I was uh, at BYU in, in Provo, Utah. What were you studying? I was studying Middle Eastern studies and international studies. But but I will say what, what motivated me to answer your question, it started off with sort of this film that captured my attention and then reading and learning all about it. I didn't have really anyone who'd served in the military for generations. My ancestors fought, or at least one, probably two, fought in the Revolutionary War. And so there is that history, but but I didn't have a grandfather, a father, or, or I don't think any uncles who had served in the military, so I didn't have that example. But what the CIA became for me was a way to serve, and as I learned more about it, something inside me said I, I could do this, and I could do this well, and I could serve in this capacity and make a difference. How did this sense that you had that you worried about the values of the country come to you because there's a lot of people who wouldn't think that the cia would be the central place for finding that for studying american history for because the cia sometimes did anti-democratic things abroad in our history as you know how did that sense that you have that that clearly is motivating you then and now come to you I don't think it started in the agency. I, I think it started with my upbringing. A sense that values are important, I think, was instilled in me by my parents, and and really not in any sort of dogmatic way. I mean, they took us to church, and that had a big part of it, too. Yeah. Um, but like the American creed, you know? The, yeah. The... I mean, I watched my parents live, you know? Mm-hmm. I watched my dad, for example... As I mentioned, we didn't grow up with a lot, but we would go on these family vacations in this Volkswagen van, this blue and white Volkswagen van, old van that we had. There was no air conditioning. We couldn't afford to fly. There were four kids, two parents. So we drove, we would make this loop in the summer between Southern California or Santa Barbara and then further south into Southern California and then cross over into Arizona where my mother was raised. And we would do all that driving through the deserts of the West without any air conditioning in this van. Anyway, that just gives you a picture. My dad had a paper route. In addition, he was a computer programmer, computer scientist, but he was a young guy with a big family and, you know, we struggled to make ends meet. So at one point for years, actually, he had a paper route. And so he did that as a professional in addition to his normal job. It's just to say that we didn't, we didn't have a lot. We, you know, we never went hungry, but we didn't have a lot. I never saw my father turn away anyone who asked for help. And sometimes it was while we were on these vacations, we were sweating up a storm in this van, didn't have a lot of money for nice, you know, anything. And people, I remember a couple of times, someone approaching my father at a gas station while we were gassing up, asking for help in the, in the middle of the West, wherever we were. And I remember thinking to myself, even as a kid, like, what do we have to help with this guy with? Like, look at us. And, and my dad would always find a way to help. And I think it's just watching those examples taught me that acting, even when it's hard, and, and there are many other examples I could give you about, about them and, and my parents and what they, the example they gave for me, but it really taught me that even when things are hard, what's important are your values, what you stand for, and, and doing the right thing, even when it's very hard and even painful to do. And, and that's what I learned from them. Do you connect that to, did you study American history? Did you like have knowledge about the constitution or the government? Because you end up running for president. So I'm sort of interested in where you come to an interest in how we're governed. It starts with having a sense of what is right and what is wrong. For me, that, that I learned from my parents and from, you know, my upbringing and, and my faith and that sort of thing. And somehow that's connected to the way I see our country, actually. I, I see our country as a nation that was founded by people who had a sense for what was right and what was wrong. Were they perfect in that? Absolutely not. But did they take some revolutionary steps forward for their time? Absolutely they did, and at great cost. They were, when those who signed the Declaration of Independence, when they signed that, that they were signing their own death warrant at that time, but they did it anyway. And then they sacrificed, and many other Americans sacrificed much more 
to to found a country on those values. And so for me, it starts there, that there is good and evil, in my opinion. And our, our founders identified some important values that weren't recognized by governments in the world, namely that we, at the time, are equal to those who lead us, and that we should have equal protection on the law. Again, their, their realization of that was imperfect by far, as we know. But they set us on a path then and, and called us to continue on that path. And that's our job today. Our job is to continue to hold on to those values and to fight for their more perfect realization for all Americans. And I believe on behalf of ourselves, but also for the world, for the, the cause of liberty around the world. I want to ask you about your time in Congress and staffing in, in Congress and what you thought the values were around you and that you were promoting in that work. I think that most members of Congress actually do go there with the best intentions. Not not all of them. And, I, think, and, I think almost all of them. I, I yeah, do, yeah, yeah I, I do. I, 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 There's a few that are bonkers but the, yeah. there, there's a few who start off I, I think in a bad place but but I think most go there and, and want to make a positive difference on both there. parties yeah in both parties and of course there are disagreements about what the right policies are and, and all of that but I don't I don't question the motives of most members of Congress I think they really do want to make a difference I do think though once you get there you tend to want to stay there for a lot of members you, you get to a point where your main goal becomes sticking around and maintaining your seat in Congress rather than upholding your oath to defend the Constitution. And that ends up getting in the way of doing the right thing. And and it does get tricky. Don't get me wrong. I mean, if you were talking to a member of Congress right now, a Republican in the House, for example, and you said, why aren't you standing up to Trump more, it would probably be a he. And he would probably say, well, it's because you, you look, I don't like what the president does, but I've got to defend my ability to be here because if I'm not here, it's going to be someone even worse. Or, or some of the things, the direction he's taking us, I agree with, or... Well, they, yeah, yeah so, some agree with the, a lot of the policies uh, that he advances, but they don't like the tone. And, and I, I think the tone is important. I think civility is very important. It's an underrated thing. It's just not civility, it's honesty. It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, honesty, yeah. And, and, and some of the policies are destructive. But they'll all have their own opinions, but even the ones who oppose the president the most, for all of those reasons, will tell you, well, I, you know, if, if I'm not here, then it's going to be somebody who, who's worse. And, and, you know, at least I'm somebody who isn't a, a Trump loyalist. And I understand that argument, but at the end of the day, we need people not just to represent, and representing is part of that, part of their jobs, we're a representative government, but also leadership is part of the job. And there's always a balance. I do think there's a balance. Sometimes it's right to represent. Sometimes when it most matters, you've got to lead. And I, I think that's yeah, actually, what's lacking. Actually tell your constituency that they're wrong about something occasionally. Yeah. yeah. yeah or, and that's a tricky tricky balance, as you've put. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, it doesn't have to be done exactly in those terms, but helping people see a better way. And and even when it's unpopular, I, I feel like I, I spent a lot of time doing that and, and I take the heat for that a lot. And I, I understand why it's difficult and it's especially difficult when you've been elected to do it, but it must be done for the good of the country. That's why the oath that they take doesn't say, uh, do everything you can that's legal to maintain your seat. It says you know, that they'll defend the Constitution, and that's the oath, that their sworn oath that they've taken. And especially now, when we've just seen recently a majority of Congress voting to oppose the, the president's emergency declaration, which he is used to do an end run around the Article Two, Article One authorities of the Constitution that give only Congress the right to set the spending levels for anything that the federal government does. And, and Congress has spoken many times on the funding levels that it's giving for the president's wall that he would like to build and for border security. The president hasn't liked those numbers, so he's declared a national emergency to go around it. And I've been talking to members of Congress, many Republicans, who are more concerned about the politics of opposing the president rather than upholding the Constitution. And I find that so disappointing and, and terribly dangerous. So when you were there in their midst, what did you learn about how people operate in the Republican Party in Congress? 
I guess I'm partially asking a question because from the lens of why are they making these choices to back up a president who many of them during the campaign in 2016 said terrible things about? Yeah, it's a good question, and there there needs to be much greater study of of how that happened, how Republican members of Congress and other Republican leaders in, in other positions went from opposing the president, even though they did it quietly mostly, even in the beginning, to deciding to get on board. So there were different phases of this. One phase was sort of their scene the popular support that he was generating, right? And and the president, I think, only won 47% of the primary vote in the, in the Republican primary. Even if you're a primary candidate and you've got 25% of the, the, the party's support and it's quite fervent, other elected officials are going to take note. And that's, that's exactly what happened as he was rising through the primaries. Even though he still just had a plurality of the vote, he didn't have a majority. Members of Congress, Republicans were looking at that saying, well, my goodness, this is real, and I better be careful about opposing it, because if I do, these Trump supporters who have been my supporters are going to have a problem with me. So that's how it started, and where, where there started to be some fear related to his support, even though it wasn't a majority. And then they were already quiet, but then they went silent after that, and their silence helped his popularity grow even further. And if they had stood up in that moment or earlier, I believe that we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now, but they chose not to. Eventually, he he gained more momentum, and that fear became a sense of opportunism in which they thought, in, as individuals, and, and less so for the party, but they thought opportunistically for themselves, could there be a cabinet position out of this for me? Might I be named his vice presidential running mate? First, it was, uh, I better not stand in the way of this or I'll lose my seat. And then if I, if I be quiet about it or support it, then I'll keep my seat. And then what kind of opportunities are there for me? And then I think actually, and this is an important note, a secondary consideration was, well, then maybe we can advance our agenda. If the president's elected, we can advance our agenda. I don't even think that was the main motivation. I think it was more about self-interest, self-preservation, and opportunism for their own political careers. And not all of them made that trade, but the vast majority, I'm sad to say, did. What were you thinking during sort of the rise of Trump through the primaries of 2016? Well, I mean, I was very opposed early on, and I, you know, I was advising the House Republicans on policy matters, and as you know, not as a, a public person. I think I looked back, and and I think this is true that in September of 2015, I, I made my first public statement against Trump on Facebook, and of course, no one cared, <laughs> um, no one saw it except for my small group of friends. But I was saying even then, advising uh, members of Congress not to get on board. And, you know, all of that was, you know, aside from my own commentary on social media, which, you know, didn't matter because I was just a private person, I was vocal to, to members of Congress in opposition. But my opposition to the president, uh, of course, did not gain much traction and, and did not have much influence, maybe on, on a couple of members for a short time. But, but in the end, it was not successful. What was the path that led you to actually run for president? Well, I had been trying during uh, the months leading up to the Republican convention. I had been working and had been in touch with others who were doing the same, looking for someone to challenge Trump if it was necessary, if he made it through the convention as the nominee, as a conservative independent. And uh, I had spoken to a couple of members of Congress, one of whom was considering it, and... Senators, or...? Members of the House. Mm -hmm. There were senators who others were talking to and who were thinking about it, at least one. Mm -hmm. I also hoped that maybe a former presidential candidate would, would jump in. Someone who was a known quantity, who had a team and national name recognition and... Uh, like uh, someone like a Romney or something. Uh, yeah, Governor Romney would have been, Senator now Romney would no. have been fantastic. Someone, and I was prepared to leave my job and jump onto that effort, and, and no matter what its prospects were, and, and to fight the good fight. And, and I thought I would do it as a, you know, a policy staffer or something like that. 
But in the end, the convention happened and the president was nominated and it was then painfully clear that those who were looking for someone to do this, including myself, had no one. And so that started off a 10-day period in which I considered doing it myself. And that came up in discussion with a few people who had been working to find someone and considering it themselves. And I felt strongly that if no one else was going to do it, if no one else was going to do it, then then yes, I should do it. But but that wasn't my preference and wasn't what I was working towards. Well, your your national name recognition was not high. It was zero. <laughs> it was it was zero. I, I remember the day that it leaked that I was running. It seemed like one of the main headlines was this guy has only 130 Twitter followers, <laughs> which I found to be totally bizarre. Like, how are they measuring me by the number of Twitter followers I have? It's, how can this possibly be how, how they measure a man? It's probably not what Thomas Jefferson would have chosen as <laughs> no, the metric. <laughs> no, that's right. But maybe, but maybe it's, maybe it's a characteristic of how we got to where we are today. Even if someone bought their Twitter followers uh, yeah, to begin with. Right. It's sort of this, this idea that celebrity is validation of character, which, my goodness, if we we've learned anything over the last few years. I hope it's that that's not the case. So what was the the run itself like for you? Yeah, well, first of all, it was only three months. I, we launched on August 8th and of, of course, you carried through until election day. And But I'll tell you, it was probably the longest three months of my life. <laughs> Working pretty hard. Uh, yeah, it was intense. And I've done a lot of really, really intense things in different ways. So I, I'm not a stranger to that, but it was a different kind of intensity. It was very grueling. Uh, at times, it was a lot of fun. It was always rewarding. I was g- so grateful to the American people and to everyone for, for giving me a, a chance, even though it was three months in a, a moonshot emergency campaign. But I, I had an opportunity to, to share my thoughts with the American people and to make my case. And I was able to do that. But um, And there was a point know. where you were running ahead in the polls in Utah, right? I was, I was. So, so we, we, we spent a lot of time in a lot of different states in those three months around the country. Uh, but we pulled ahead in, in Utah for a time by a few percentage points, I think. That was an exciting time. I mean, it's it's not something that I took for granted even at the time, and and I knew it was going to be very tough. In in the last few weeks, we ended up spending quite a lot of time in in Utah to try to prevail there, and in in the end, we didn't. And sort of the exit polls show that I think it was twelve or thirteen percent of the population of the voting population decided that although I was their preference, that they were more concerned about Hillary Clinton being elected than about Trump being elected. And so they voted for Trump, even though I was strategic their, voting, it was yeah. a strategic vote. And it was sort of that, that spoiler candidate dynamic that is, that, that is difficult for independent or third party candidates. And and what happened happened, but but I have to say that you know a lot of people ask me. I mean, did you you decided to run? Did you, did you think you could be successful? And, and I believe very strongly that I could be successful, but not in the way that that people traditionally think of. I knew that electorally it would be difficult. I was never one of those candidates that said we're you know we're going to win. I said it's very difficult. We have a chance, but it's a slim chance. But it's a chance. But really, where I thought we could be successful, and and where thankfully we were was to make a stand for our foundational values, our foundational principles, which we cannot abandon. I know that that ideas and ideals and principles, they can vanish, they can evaporate from a country or a political movement if they're not represented by leaders. I knew that we would be able to mount a defense, and and it was a modest defense, but still to this day, there there is a minority of the Republican Party and of Republican-leaning independents who still do not bow, will not bow to what they see in this administration, the abuses of power, the incivility, the corruption. And they have joined forces with other Americans of other political affiliations who are also standing up against these things and, and in defense of our values. I'm glad we did what we did for that, for that reason, especially. What do you think of Trump personally? I believe that all people have good in them. And I also believe that uh, we are also all challenged and, and we all do wrong things as well. Every single one of us, all of us. 
I also believe in in the redemption of, of everyone of of murderers of, yeah. of everyone you know convicted felons uh, those of us who might treat someone poorly during the day or, or tell a white lie or a big lie or mistreat our loved ones or whatever it is and I believe in in the redemption of of humankind I mean I, I this is this is what I believe. And I also think we need to be very careful about passing judgment on anyone on a deep level of who they are as a person. But I do think that we do need to to make judgments in a democracy about our leaders. And we need to listen to the things they say and watch the things they do and never sort of damn them for for eternity, that sort of thing. That's not our job. But our our job is, is to make judgments about whether they possess the character and the the integrity necessary to protect our country, which starts with the protection of our values, as, we, as we've discussed. And about the president, I think it's it's fair to say, based on his own comments and his own actions, that he currently possesses the integrity and the the, the character and the the moral compass required for the leadership of this country as it was founded and as it has progressed through history and should progress in the coming years and decades and centuries. I I, I don't think he has that. I, I think that for now he has chosen to be a deeply immoral and wicked person who has put the country at great risk, both in the near term and long term. I hope that that's not the path that he chooses forever. I believe that he has the ability to change. Uh, I think that's unlikely, yes. Uh, I don't think we should count on that. I think we have to work to hold him accountable and to replace him. I hope that someday he will turn to his better angels. And I don't, I wouldn't try to suggest that anyone uh, fails to have that option. We all have that option, and including the president. I think I agree with what, what you said there. And what is hard to hear about that for me is that with 4% unemployment and a unified Republican Party behind him, it's very likely he'll be reelected. I would say it's more probable than not, as a political scientist, I might think about it, unless there's a recession, unless there's something that hits him really hard, or unless the Democrats nominate somebody, unless a lot of unlesses, he's putting together a enormous campaign operation that's likely to be very centralized and very effective in communicating his message, and he's already pretty adept at that. So we face those of us who are allied to try to make sure he doesn't get reelected. We face a very high hurdle, higher than I think a lot of people realize. And you're part of, I think, trying to educate people about why it's not a good idea. Tell me about the organization you've started and how that fits into this resistance or whatever we would call it. We don't use the word resistance uh, around here. And there's the reason for that. It's not a great word anyway. I don't personally use that word, I think, because I take it too literally. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coming from my agency days, uh, for me, resistance is is a whole other level of activities and we're, we're not paramilitary. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> we're, we're not, we're not there. We're not doing that. But I, I, you know, I just want to make that clear, but I'll tell you our organization that Mindy and I, Mindy Finn and I started this in the first week of the, of the presidency, actually, the standard Republic is an organization that, uh, that unites Americans from across the political spectrum around the defense of our democratic small d ideals, norms, and institutions. The same that protect our liberty and that uphold government that that defends or that recognizes our inherent equality, the equal value of all human beings. And, and so that's what we do. And, and we do that through advocacy. We have a national organization. We're organized in a couple dozen states. We have members in every state, donors in every state. We do national advocacy campaigns around legislation that, that is important to protect and strengthen our democracy. Uh, we also are, are now getting involved in state-level initiatives, whether they be legislative or 
ballot initiatives to help strengthen our democracy through gerrymandering reform so that districts are decided by independent commissions and and ranked choice voting so that voters can more fully express their preferences and therefore elect more unifying and effective leaders. Uh, so we do, we do all of these things. So it, it's about defending our democracy in the short term, of course, but also about, and this is important, strengthening our democracy. We have to respond to these challenges to the republic, not only with defensive measures, but also with, we have to go on the offensive. We have to be proactive in strengthening our democracy. That's what this moment calls for, is for us to be better, be stronger, reach even closer to our ideals. I mean, that, that's what this moment demands, and that's what Stand Up Republic is, and it's, it's for all Americans, all Americans who are committed to our foundational values, the institutions that protect our, our freedom and, and our equality, and, and to justice in America. That's what Stand Up Republic is about, and that's the work we do. How big is Stand Up Republic? What kind of weight can you throw in this system that we have? We're organized. We, like I said, we have members in every state. We're organized in, in 25 states. We have state leadership teams. We have been able to throw around actually quite a lot of weight. And we also have another organization called the American Values Pack. It's a super pack. And so through these vehicles and a 501c3, which is uh, Stand Up Republic Foundation, but through these vehicles as appropriate, because the laws require certain activities to be done and through certain organizations, but through these vehicles, we, we've been able to play an important role. For example, in the 2017 special election for Senate in Alabama, we opposed Roy Moore, uh, making the case uh, especially to center-right Republicans and right-leaning independents that Roy Moore uh, was an unacceptable choice for the Senate. We reached uh, millions of, of people in Alabama several times each on average with this message. It was a very targeted message for a targeted segment of the electorate. And uh, we spent about you know, five or $600,000 there in the final 10 days or so, I think. And I, I don't think that the election outcome would have been the same without what we had done because it was so close. There's a high bar, by the way. We don't get involved in just any old election. We get involved when, when a candidate poses a threat to our country. And so we opposed Steve King. Our campaign, we were by far the largest outside players against Steve King or in that, in that race period. Mm -hmm. uh, our campaign was larger than Steve King's campaign. Wow. And we, I think, played a central role in dropping him from a 25% victory margin in 2016 to a 3% victory margin in 2018. Same thing with Devin Nunes. We were the largest out, outside players by a, a large margin there, and we helped drop his victory margin in 2016 from 35% to 2018, and it, in which it was only 5%. And we're not finished. And these are, these are the things that we do. Who else are you looking at as a threat? Well, I think those those two remain on our lists. And uh, will you try to play in the presidential race? We intend to. What, yes. What What are you thinking about doing? Well, a, a couple of things, and I'm glad you asked. First of all, we just think it's so important to replace the president through our democratic processes with a unifying, capable, fit leader who, who is someone of character and integrity. And the good news is that there are plenty of possibilities for us. That's the good news on both sides of the aisle. And of course, I come from you know a Republican background. So yes, I have my policy preferences and they tend to be on that side of the spectrum with some difference to the sort of current Republican orthodoxy, certainly. But but I do think on both sides of the aisle, there are people that fit those standards that I just mentioned and others. We think that it is tremendously important for the national security and health and, and prosperity of the country on a long-term basis that we replace the president. And so we're going to work towards that. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to, to be prepared to have an impact, the same kind of impact we had against Roy Moore, Steve King, and Devin Nunes, and others in swing states in this country. So does that mean sort of targeting Republicans like you, Republicans who are disappointed with the character of their, their leader who might be vulnerable to 
swinging the other way in this election? Is it, what, what does that mean in particular? Well, it, first of all, I want to clarify that I, I am a registered independent and have been for as long as I can remember, right? But okay. I just as a point of fact, uh, but many people understandably sort of put me into the Republican bucket. And I it certainly served in that context before this, even as an independent. But yes, that's part of it. Part of it is making the case to people who are Republicans who are opposed to the president, as well as to independents who are traditionally Republican-leaning. But it's also beyond that. It's maintaining a coalition of Americans that are putting country over party, that are standing up for our values and for our system of government that protects liberty and justice in America that certainly needs to be improved. Don't get me wrong. Many improvements are required and we're fighting for those too. But we intend to fight for that coalition, to keep that coalition together. And so, yes, a key part of that coalition is, you know, the center right is Republican leaning independence, but they are but part of it. And the reason we've been successful in, in other electoral activities is that we have fought to defend and strengthen and grow this coalition. And we're going to keep doing that. And I, I am optimistic and excited about what I think is our ability to have a serious, potentially decisive impact in 2020. Now, I will say that's not the only thing we intend to do. I'm increasingly hearing from Democrats. And I, I heard someone uh, say, I think on Twitter uh, recently, that something to the effect of, it was a Democrat, uh, an influential Democrat said, look, you know, Republicans who are opposed to Trump, if they really understand the danger that Trump poses to the country, they're going to vote for whoever we nominate. And if they don't, well, then they don't really understand the danger that Trump poses to the country. But I couldn't disagree with that more. Look, we don't see it the same way I say we, people who come from the, the right who are opposed to the president. We don't see it exactly the same way, but we do understand the danger. And that's why we've, we've taken a stand that has cost us friendships, cost us professional opportunities, cost us all kinds of things, and sometimes personal security. And it clearly does matter who the Democrats nominate to be palatable for people in that category. Independents, Republican-leaning independents and Republicans. It matters a lot to them, right? It, it, Is, it really does. When you look at the Democratic field mm -hmm. right now, what sort of characteristics are you looking for to hopefully rise to the top? And what would you rather not see from the point of view of winning? Well, I, I think character and integrity has got to be the first test, okay? Mm -hmm. And that, that always, by the way, has to be the first test. Right? One would think so. Yeah, we've got to get back to that. And, you know, we could spend... Rather than minute policy positions. Yeah, well, well mm -hmm. right. And, and policies are important, but the first test has to be integrity and character. And we could spend an entire hour talking about why that's important, but character and integrity matter because... Look, you know, despite all our laws, which we're seeing are deficient, right, to, to defend the country against corruption and, and terrible, dangerous corruption in a president, we're experiencing that right now with sort of trying to hold the president accountable for his encouragement of the Russian attack on our country. And we're finding that maybe maybe on, on a legal level, we're not set up to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and not only him, but others who are participated in that. And so the point is that our laws are never going to be enough to ensure that our leaders do the right thing for our country. And that's why integrity and in character are so important, because we have to be able to trust that in the private moments when no one knows exactly what they're doing, that they're going to do the right thing. And, and right now, we should be learning that lesson, and I think many are. So that's the first thing. And I think, frankly, plenty of the Democrats, as far as I know, as far as we've seen so far, meet that standard. And that's the great news. Now, on policymaking, I know that the Democrats, most of the Democratic candidates, if not all of them, are not going to be what I, if I'm to put on sort of my partisan policy hat, are going to prefer. I get that. But I will tell you that the standard that I think needs to be applied is when our presidential candidates of any party or of no party talk about policy, 
Are they being honest with the American people? And are they proposing policy options that are evidence-based, fact-based? That learn from policy before, that, Absolutely. that, that pay attention to experts. That, that, exactly. Yeah. Even if it's unpopular to yeah. say, because it's easy to go out there and say, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Here's a problem. We're trying to fix it. This is what people think are ways to do it. Let's pick among, let's, let's right. compromise on some policy That's, that actually attacks the problem. That's right. And that takes into consideration uh, the, the context in which we're making policies. And so what I see out there is a lot, and this is what concerns me with some of the candidates, thankfully not, not all of them, but, but some of the Democratic candidates I, I think are not doing this. They aren't sort of fully recognizing the challenges in certain policy areas and instead telling people what they want to hear. Yeah. Thankfully, some Democrats aren't doing that. And some Democrats who aren't running are saying, hey, don't do that yeah. because you're setting up these expectations for the, in the people that are not going to be able to be met. And that, that's not the right thing to do. And there's going to be disappointment. One, one brief story that I could share is I, I remember in this 2018 cycle, I was talking to a Democratic House candidate who, who did not prevail, but ran a, a fairly effective campaign in a, in a red state against a Republican. They had been proposing some, some policies that, that I, this, I was making the point to them that, hey, you're probably not going to be able to attract the center-right making these policy proposals. They said, well, look, you know, I don't actually believe that that's the best policy proposal, but it's where there's tremendous energy there right now, and that's why I say it. And I just, boy, I heard that and I said, you know, that's that's in part why why we are where we are yeah, today. That drives is, me crazy. Yeah, and we just can't do it. As, as leaders, especially those who are pursuing elected office and the, who are elected, we can't just tell the American people what they want to hear. We have to be honest with the American people. That's, that's the job. I just interviewed Mitch Landrew, mayor of uh, New Orleans, who's, right. who is a you know, thought about running for president, I don't think will, but he said something almost identical to that. Like, it's time to tell people what they need to be told. Right. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And uh -huh. the good news about that, actually, is that you take some heat for doing that, no, no doubt about it. And it can come at a political cost, mm -hmm. especially in the short term. But it com could come to at a political gain, too. That's right. And I will say that I think there are plenty of Americans out there who appreciate that. Even if they actually disagree with what you're saying, they will appreciate and reward, especially in the long term, I believe, you're telling them the truth even when they, especially when they don't want to hear it. And, and actually that dialogue should go both ways. I mean, people should tell their leaders things that they don't want to hear. I think we're better at that. <laughs> but our leaders need to grow a backbone that is sort of lined with the steel of honesty and truth and facts. And so going back to the democratic primary process, you know, that's something I'm, I'm looking for. And, and when we think about 2020 and, and electing a unifying, effective replacement to the president who, who has a high degree of character and integrity, a part of that is also ensuring that the Democrats nominate someone who fits that bill and who therefore can keep this cross-partisan coalition together. So will you play in the Democratic primary? I think we, we likely will. Going back to, to something I was just saying before, but, you, you know, we, we heard an influential Democrat saying, hey, we, you know, anti-Trump Republicans are just going to have to get on board with whoever we nominate. Well, I, I just reject that. And I do think, and I, and I will increasingly make the point to Democrats and also to people on the center right or the center, that, hey, if the, if the Democrats are going to expect us at the end of the day to vote for their nominee to replace the president, which is something we hope to do, then we ought to be able to have a say in who is nominated. And so there's opportunity for that. In, in a lot of the early states, there are some version of open primaries that allow independents uh, and sometimes even Republicans to vote in those primaries. And I think, barring something, you know, a credible challenger on the right to challenge Trump and potentially win, which right now I just don't see it, uh, given the, the nature of, of the party, its condition right now. Those of us who remain opposed to the president, we, we may not be Democrats, but we ought, if we're going to be expected to help elect a, a replacement to the president, we ought to have a say, given our two-party system and who that nominee is. Do you have a particular favorite? 
I, you know, I do have a, a couple who I'm a few actually more than a couple who who I'm, I'm liking and, and others who I know about who who might get in. You know, I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of name names right now, but but they do exist. And and the good thing is, it's it's more than two or three. So I think there will be great options there. And and I'll also say it sort of depends on how they run, you know, where they decide to go, what lane. It's too early to say uh, with certain which lanes candidates are going to choose, but you can see the early beginnings of where people are positioning themselves. And and I think there, there are a lot of promising options. I think the most scary thing to me about Trump is this, I don't know what you might call an authoritarian playbook that's running in other countries and where you've seen as someone who's work to combat authoritarian regimes abroad, that sometimes a leader just accretes power slowly and, and then abuses it. And Trump is, isn't very far down that path in this country yet. We have pretty strong institutions and a lot of them are holding. But do you worry about him from that standpoint? I mean, absolutely. And I, I still worry about that, yes. And I've been talking about that for, I think, well, since September of 2015. So yes, I, I worry about it. And uh, look, we have tremendous institutions that in some ways are functioning as they should. Look, I've never been more concerned than I am now. I mean, we, we just had the Congress set the funding levels for border security, the president decided that he didn't like those funding levels. And so he declared an emergency, which there is not an emergency. Do we have challenges on the border? Do I think we need to strengthen our our border security on the southern border? Actually, yes, I do. But do we have an emergency? No, the, the, the numbers just don't reflect it. Do we have challenges? Yes. Emergency? No. He doesn't want to follow the rules. Or the norms. If there's no rule and just a norm, he's willing to blow through it. If there's a a law and an institution, then his approach is to weaken that institution until it can no longer stand up to him. So let's look at our institutions. I look at our Congress. And yes, Congress did stand up to the president in, in passing a resolution to reject and to end his national emergency. It passed the House and then it passed the Senate with a little bit of Republican support. But then the president vetoed it and Congress is unable because there aren't enough Republicans who will stand up and do their jobs, their basic jobs, protect the Constitution. That is their oath of office because there aren't enough of them to do that. What has just happened, which I think is not receiving enough attention, is the president has done an end run around Article One of the Constitution. And that article says that only Congress can set the funding levels. It is one of the most important checks on this president. So Congress, I'm not, I'm not so sure that when push comes to shove, Congress really any longer is a check on the president. I'm concerned about that. You look at the media. The media has mostly done a pretty good job. I think it's learned a lot of lessons. Look at them now. Uh, you know, the attorney general is someone who pursued his current office with a pitch to the president uh, against the special counsel investigation. Sure enough, he comes, he's confirmed by Republicans in the Senate, takes that office, and sure enough, the end of the Mueller investigation happens. I don't know if it ended prematurely or not. I tend to believe maybe it didn't. I hope that Mueller was able to finish his job. It, it seems like he was, but we don't have the facts. And then he writes a three and a half page letter to Congress that says there was no there there. And all of a sudden, the media, most of it, not all of it, is sort of accepting that. And they're cowed by that. And and all of a sudden, we've forgotten everything that we've seen. It's a very weird moment right now, politically, in the way the media has responded to it. I, I think it is. And I look, I understand why this is so hard. I mean, for a lot of people, a lot of people are out of their element and understanding what the heck is happening here. And there is, you know, information asymmetry here in the sense that Attorney General Barr and the Department of Justice and perhaps the administration has more knowledge of what's in that report than anyone else, than the public, than Congress, than the media. And without that information, it's very hard for us to say, well, wait a second, that what we see here isn't right, yeah. regardless of what the prosecutorial decisions were. I'm concerned, and even before Mueller finished his investigation and delivered his report, which we haven't seen, even before that, I can tell you that the president, through using his regulatory powers, threatening mergers and acquisitions of media companies and and threatening to use other regulatory levers against media companies, has 
had a chilling effect on their willingness to cover certain aspects of the Trump-Russia story. And there are still elements of it that are not yet public, that need to be public, I believe will be public. But I can tell you that editors in the same publications that Trump criticizes the most are often extremely cautious with stories that are the most damning to the president. And so Seems what, like it. What, what I'm saying is that, yes, I'm very concerned with the president and his attack on our ideals, norms, and institutions. He absolutely continues to follow an authoritarian playbook. He's an aspiring authoritarian. He is one of them. He considers them his his pals. examples, uh, his pals yeah. and his examples of, of what leadership should be. He aspires to be them. It's and absolutely, absolutely shocking no for an American president to be in that position. It's just shocking. It is, and it's perhaps more shocking that we allowed it to happen. I understand people are frustrated with the government. We're in a time of great change, and we see that the government often isn't getting its job done. We have to reform our democracy, reform our republic, so that it better serves the people. We have to do that. But the solution is not to throw away the very system of government that we need to protect liberty and justice in America. That is not the solution. And, and, and I think a lot of us, we're, we're learning that. And, you know, we've all played our role in getting to this point in one way or another. But I think we're all collectively as a country, or many of us are, are learning lessons now. Not all of us, not enough of us, but many of us. And I do believe enough of us to, to replace the president in 2020. Let me ask you just a couple yeah. more quick questions. One, yeah. who are your best allies when you look around at groups that are sort of, that you align with, that are in the fight kind of from the same angle as you? There are organizations that focus on advancing ballot initiatives, for example, that uh, that are anti-corruption laws, or that would mean that we have independent commissions rather than elected officials choosing what the boundaries of our districts are. There are organizations pushing for greater transparency or other reforms in campaign finance. There are other organizations that are that are partisan. Some are Republican leaning, some are Democratic leaning, but they're also standing up for the rule of law and for truth. There are other organizations in the think tank space that are putting forth evidence-based solutions for the country, but they actually are technical, politically feasible answers to some of the greatest challenges we face. And so it's these, all of these organizations, and there are many of them, but what's happening now in this space, though, is that increasingly these organizations are working together in coordinating their activities. And I think that I'm very hopeful and optimistic about the, the, you know, the, the impact that that'll have. I think of you sort of as a political entrepreneur, someone who would start up an, an enterprise in this space. What have you learned about how to lead or how to create such an enterprise by doing this? What advice might you give to other people trying to do something similar? The main thing is be bold, have courage, and, and fight for something that matters. If you have the courage to fight for something that matters, then I believe in this country, you will find allies. People will come to you, whether they're you know people who want to work with you or for you, or people who want to fund you, or um, or members of of the press who want to talk to you and give you an opportunity to share your ideas. Uh, fight for something that matters. Have the courage to do it. Don't take no for an answer. Be bold. Be willing to sacrifice. First of all, and in on a personal level, on a professional level, be willing to do all of that and great things can happen. And, you know, I, I've just seen so many examples of that. There's so many examples over the last few years of, of people, whether they're students or they're teenagers or somebody who doesn't have, and I'm not talking about me, actually, I'm talking about other people who I know of who didn't have a public profile. No one knew who they were, but they, they posted something on Facebook that there's one case of a, a woman I know, uh, I believe in New Mexico, who who, who led one of the 2018 initiatives to challenge gerrymandering, to institute an independent commission mm -hmm. so that that's how districts were drawn, not in partisan ways. And it, it all started by her posting something on Facebook, just saying, hey, I think this is important and this, this is all wrong the way it is now and we should change it. Or some women in Utah who 
cared about the ethical nature of our government or cared about ethics in government. I think that started essentially with a Facebook group that grew into something that is now known as the the Mormon Women for Ethical Government, and it's it's a powerful new group that that is doing a lot of good, and 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 it all comes from conviction. Just have the courage of your conviction, and I know it. I know it's hard, but do it anyway, and you'll find others who will stand with you, and then and then it becomes not so hard. Um, but but I would just encourage people to have the have the 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 faith and courage of of their convictions to take a stand on things that are important and and become more civically engaged and this applies to everyone whether you're going to start an organization or not you know if you feel like you're doing everything you can personally you're voting you're contributing you're posting you're writing you're doing everything then organize others to do the same. And you can do that, join an organization that you align with well enough and get involved in that way. There's so many things you can do, but if you're doing all that you can, get others involved too. You've put together some staff here. Where do you find funding for the enterprise that you're running? We're so lucky to have thousands of donors across the country, you know, regular Americans who are committed to our our mission. And, and they are conservatives, they're independents, they're, they're Democrats, and they're contributing five, 10, 15, 25 dollars around the country. In addition to, to several thousand donors like that, we, we have uh, major donors that also span the political spectrum, but really are center right, center and center left. We, we don't tend to attract much support on any level from the far right or far left. That's, I think, not a surprise. We have a lot of support in Silicon Valley. We have support and elsewhere around the country. And again, from major dollar contributions from conservatives, independents, and and Democrats who are aligned with our our cross-partisan country over party mission. What would be success for you for your enterprise? As part of that question, where do you want to go yourself? What are your ultimate ambitions. The near-term goals are uh, ensuring that that we start to elect more unifying fit leaders of character. And that's at the presidential level and and certainly at the congressional level and, and down into the states, right? But we're 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 mostly going to be focused at the congressional level and also at the presidential level because we think that's what is most urgently needed. I actually think in many cases we have better leaders at the state and local level than we do at the national level. And, and part of that I think is because they're more accountable, you know, I mayors mean, are yeah. having to actually fix potholes. Well, right. Well, but that's because you know where your mayor lives, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, and my, my, my own mother served in city government for years and everybody knew where she lived. And so if, if somebody had a gripe or a beef with something that she, you know, a decision she had made or something she was doing, they could show up on her doorstep. And so I'd like to actually bring that kind of, that kind of accountability and civic engagement and access. And that's part of what we're fighting for. But so part of it is electing unifying leaders, but another part of it is is reforming our processes to strengthen our democratic republic so that we are electing more unifying, effective leaders. The, the, the more long-term uh, goal for the organization is to make sure that our country, that there's a cross-partisan coalition of Americans that are foundationally committed to our ideals, that we are all of inherent equal value and that we are equal under the law and that we are inherently free. We were created free, that it is an inherent part of our nature. And that is is something that I feel very passionate about and I'll defend until the day I die. And it is is the foundation of our government. We want to inspire a long-term cross-partisan recommitment to those values. That's what we're fighting for, and and I do that now. I'm not standing as a, I'm not a candidate, uh, and I. And, You've said though that you might want to be again at some point, uh, and you seem to have a knack for answering questions in a way that that a very good candidate would. Well, well thank you. I, I I tend to just speak about what I'm <laughs> uh, what I care about, and I um, regardless, and and I do think that I'll be a candidate again, uh, that I'll pursue public office. I don't think that now's the right time for that. I, 
I am so committed to our mission and, and to what we're fighting for. I think that that I and, and that Mindy Finn and our team and, and our state leadership teams and all our members across the country, I think that that we can better do this with me as a private person rather than an elected official for now. But yes, I do want to pursue public office again. I think the time will come for that, but I don't think now's the time. I want to focus exclusively on these things and fight this fight, and it's much easier for me to do it if I'm unencumbered as a private individual and that I can get out there and focus specifically on these things and only these things. I I neglected to ask you about Mindy and why you put her on the ticket with you and why she's a co-founder. What is it that she's bringing to this? Yeah. I happen to have met her and she wrote a chapter, co-wrote a chapter in a book that I put out a number of years ago. But, oh, but, great. Yeah. but um, what, what was it about her that made sense? I am so grateful to have Mindy Finn with me in this fight. She is one of the, the toughest, strongest people I know. She is, she is incredibly wise. She's incredibly thoughtful, incredibly talented, and I, I genuinely am extremely grateful to to have her in this fight with me, to be with her in this fight. And she was a, a Republican political consultant, technology and politics generally, or communication and politics. Yeah, she, right. She, she's a, a sort of worked at the intersection of technology and politics, right? And and on the polit- on the Republican side, yes. And she she pioneered much of the sort of the digital data political space uh, in politics and certainly on the Republican side. And so she she brings that. But uh, and, and certainly that's very important, especially important for some of the projects. It's a good skill set to have. It's yeah. a very good skill set to have. And it, look, it helps us it helps us understand the Russians' attack on our democracy and on other foreign potential, you know, challenges that we, we face from foreign adversaries and, and from others who would, you know, domestically even, who would mislead the American people through uh, digital technology. And she, she very much understands that. And so we sort of combine my intelligence background with her in understanding and her expertise in that area. And we really, it enables us to understand, I think, what's happening you know, some of the threats facing the country. But but actually, as important as that is, I, I wouldn't even say that's the most important thing. Mindy brings to the table a great deal of strength, wisdom, and toughness uh, that is absolutely vital for, for our fight. And she is 100% the, the best person that I, I could imagine working with uh, as we do as partners in this effort. It's been an honor to talk to you today. Is there a question I should have asked that you, or the question you would like me to have asked that you'd like to answer? No, that I thought it was, I, I had a lot of fun. It was a great conversation. You really, you got me to talk about a lot of things I care most about. And if we had time, I could go on for another five hours with a conversation like this. I would love to talk to you all day. I feel that yeah. way about a lot of people that yeah. that bring a passion and intelligence to what we, what we have to fight right now. Well, thank you for the conversation. I, I, it was a lot of fun and I hope we can do it again. Thank you. That was Evan McMullen of Stand Up Republic. He's at StandUpRepublic.com. I'm glad Evan and his team are working to strengthen this country. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.